Well, what a joy and honor it is for me uh, to serve today. Uh, when Pastor Scott asked me a few weeks ago if I, would, uh, uh, if I would fill in for him on this wonderful Lord's Day morning, I was in the thick of battle finishing uh, my last few classes in Hebrew, and I was feeling totally overwhelmed. But the opportunity to serve you in the pulpit uh, was a boon to my spirit and uh, kind of a propellant to get me back into the uh, study and so I pray that my studies will be of a, a great service and a blessing to you this morning. I should also share that Hebrew has proven to be the most difficult subject for me, uh, the language that is. I, I thought I was doing fairly well until I hit that language and I found out that I'm uh, not as great as I thought I was. But it was very rewarding because it opened up a passion for the Old Testament in me and I'm excited to share what I've been learning. At the same time, when Scott asked me, what are you going to preach on, I knew right away where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. So you can go ahead and find the book of Isaiah between Song of Solomon and, and Jeremiah. And I knew I wanted to dive into the prophets of the Old Testament. When you read the prophets of the Old Testament, sometimes the, the text of the Old Testament, especially these, are difficult to interpret. They use very figurative language, very colorful. The illustrations are from a long, long time ago, and it's difficult for us as a modern reader. But I have found that with a little bit of elbow grease, a little bit of sweat, you can find the message that lies within, and it is very, very appropriate for what we face today. They mirror the very world we live in, and the prophets of old speak for God in a very direct manner. So Isaiah is there where, where we're going to be today, and I want you to know just a couple key facts behind Isaiah. He's the most quoted Old Testament prophet, where he's quoted over 65 times. He's mentioned directly by name, including from our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, over 20 times. And so he stands as the most referenced prophet in all of Scripture. Now on Christmas, the, the Sunday before Christmas, some of you might be thinking, well, maybe we're going to go to Isaiah 7 where it talks about the virgin birth of Emmanuel. Or maybe we'll go to Isaiah 9 or Isaiah 11, or maybe we could even go to Isaiah 53. But I decided I wanted to go somewhere where we don't normally go. I wanted to find the most obscure messianic text and dive in there and know for a fact that I would be tied to that language. And what that language would produce would be what the author intended to say. And so I want to take you there. I want you to turn to chapter 59, Verse 15, chapter 59 of Isaiah, verse 15. And I want you to follow along with me as I read the words of Isaiah the prophet as he writes the people of Judah. Isaiah 59, 15. We're going to go to chapter 60, verse 2. And after that, we'll pray and ask the Lord to be with us. Isaiah 59, 15. Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and he wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. 
To make to the coastlines, he will make recompense. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing wind, like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. A redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring says the Lord from now and forever. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful, Lord, for your word, for the prophets of old, for these truths that are evident and that stick with us. Lord, we're thankful, Lord, for all that you've done uh, for us, even in this day alone, to bring us to your feet at worship so that we could praise you and recognize you as the one true God. I pray for our time together that the word would be beneficial, that our fears and our hopes and our desires would be allocated and single on you. I pray for each one here that they would be blessed and nourished with your word and that they would too arise and move to the newness of the day. So we praise you, we thank you. Ask us all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Thomas Brooks, a Puritan preacher, was once asked to answer this question. What goes from a people when the gospel goes? At that time, the Puritans were being pushed out of their pulpits, and so he answered that question in a farewell address from his pulpit with a simple answer. This is what goes from a people when the gospel goes. Peace, prosperity, safety, civil liberty, true glory, soul happiness, and the presence of God. The first three alone are evident realities of today, and this is an astounding truth. This is what the people of Isaiah's time were facing, and I might add that we are facing today. I recently had a conversation with an older gentleman who said he can't bear to watch the news. He can't bear even to turn the television on anymore. And I would say the majority of us share that sentiment. What we see beholding by our eyes is truly affecting how we look at the world today. The images on the streets and the decisions being made by our leaders have reached whole new levels. And now fear exists. It attempts to rule, that is fear, over all our decisions which we even on an individual level are being asked to make. It permeates our existence at every level. Shot or no shot, Mask or no mask, buy a house now or wait, travel here or don't, invest in this or not, sell or don't sell. When fear becomes entrenched, we have become paralyzed, unsure, and uncertain. And I know that each one of you have dealt with this at some level or another. I read in a news line, a a gentleman that said this when he wrote his article, he said, times of the past behind us are looking brighter than the foreboding darkness of our future. When we talk about the prophets of I, in Isaiah, or Isaiah in that time, and the prophets of the Old Testament, this is exactly what was happening. 
Now, I did pick an obscure text, and I want to take some time to make sure we pinpoint down where we're at so you have a clear understanding of what the dialogue is and what the subject matter is. So we need to understand the context. First, Isaiah's ministry was a ministry through four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. What you need to understand is it's between the first and second king is where Isaiah is commissioned in Isaiah 6. The other thing you need to understand at that time, peace and prosperity were at the peak. Uzziah was known as a king that built, and he built great fortresses, and he pushed the kingdom of the southern kingdom of Judah way out. And so during this time, this is a time of heightened comfort. And it's at this time I is called to bring them judgment. He's called to warn them. What's he warning them exactly to? That despite all the glitz, despite all the growth, despite the, the economic machine just moving, underneath lied a problem. There was moral rot in the society. Jotham, his son, brought about the same thing, but that rot continued, and it was seen in the idolatrous worship that they brought. At that time, Judah was singularly focused on Yahweh, had temple unity, but by the time they get to the third king, Ahaz, he has added new altars to the temple. And Isaiah witnesses it this whole time. Secondly, you need to understand that the book of Isaiah is broken down into three main sections. Chapters 1 through 35 is Isaiah pronouncing coming judgment. Wrath of God against both Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern. You have a short interlude in chapters 36 through 39 of a narrative. A narrative, and it's, a, it's an account of Isaiah's interaction with King Hezekiah, especially when he's afraid for the capture of the Assyrian government. And finally, where we're going to be today in chapters 40 through 66, Isaiah lays out specifically how God will save Judah, and he'll save it through his suffering servant. These last chapters, you have to really understand this as well, Isaiah is actually writing to the people of Judah 150 years later when they're in Babylon in captivity. He is prophesying to a people that in their rearview mirror will have seen that everything he's prophesied has come true and the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, and all those things will be in their rearview mirror. And finally, let's look and let's start to dive into the text. Turn back with me to chapter 58. Let's look at the close context. Let's zero down in what's happening. We know in Isaiah 59, there's a dialogue between Isaiah and the people. But right before there in chapter 59, Isaiah tells them, they're, they're asking the question, why won't God hear us? Despite of what's happening, why does God not hear us? And they ask this question in verse 3. The people are asking God at chapter 58, verse 3. They're saying, why have we fasted and you do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? This is where we'll start in the text, and this is where we're going to see a dialogue between the people of Judah from a distance asking, what was it? Why are we here today in Babylon? Why are we here today when there is tragedy and loss and destruction and judgment? Why, God, why, God, won't you tell us? And he begins in verse, verse 3. He's dropped down. He says, look, they ask, why have we humbled ourselves and you do not notice? And he look, he answers in the second part of verse 3. Behold, on the day of your fast, you find desire 
and drive hard all your workers. Verse 4, behold, you fast for contention and strife and to strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do today to make your voice heard on high. The first thing he addresses is that their religion was shallow, empty, and of no value. He picks the topic of fasting. He says, you're asking me, why are we fasting and not seeing a response? And he says, I'll tell you why you don't see a response. Because on the day you should be fasting, the truth is you're actually seeking your desire. The day that you should be remembering me, you're serving yourself. And behold, you fast for contention and strife. You say, look, I'm praying for what is all happening out here. I can't, see, I can't believe what I'm seeing in the streets. There's contention, there's strife, there's animosity, there's anger, and there's destruction. And he says, whoa, whoa. It's you that strikes with a wicked fist. And what you see in verses 5, 6, and 7 is God's idea of fasting. He breaks all the way down, but drop down to verse 7. At the very bottom, he asks them, the fasting that I want from you is where you hide yourself from your own flesh. What does that mean? He's saying you deny yourself from what you want, your carnal fleshly desire. You deny yourself. God is saying be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself. You speak religious, you act religious, but the truth is your religion is a farce. This is the accurate truth according to God. And they're questioning him, and he's condemning him, and here they sit in Babylon, the exile fresh in their memories, the harsh and horrid lifestyle of the ungodly Babylonians is unfolding right there before their eyes. And these Babylonians have no God. They serve a pantheon of gods, I scrolled through and I found a Babylonian prayer from that time. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read the the part where the Babylonian, at that time, praying to a multitude of gods, essentially has to deal with the question, what do I do with my sin? What do I do with my own sin? He says, oh my God, this is the Babylonian prayer, oh my God, my transgression are seven times seven, remove my transgressions. Oh God, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are seven times seven, Remove my transgressions. O goddess, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Over and over and over, calling on a multitude of of gods to remove his transgressions. This is a prayer of one who does not know their God. Is this a male deity or a female deity? Are they capable? Can they save? Who can save us from our present condition? Who can remove our transgressions? And this is what they're starting to ask. Idolatry had always been a problem. And all through Isaiah, this was the key problem. It's your idolatrous ways. And he condemns them specifically in Isaiah 40 through 46. And I want to show you one, or a couple in particular here. In Isaiah chapter 40, turn with me there. And look at verses 18 through 20. Isaiah 40, this is one of the the key parts where he calls out their idolatrous ways. Isaiah 40, verse 18, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. In verse 20, what does the poor man do? What's the poor person do that can't afford gold and silver? In verse 20, he is too impoverished for such an offering. He selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for a craftsman, or seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Just just a block of wood. 
He goes on to say that if you turn over to Isaiah 40, Isaiah 44, verse 19, look at the very bottom of the verse 19. When God condemns all what they've done, he finally states it very clear. And this is what I love about the prophets. It's so clear. He talks about this block of wood that the guy says, look, okay, I cut a tree down and I used some of it to cook my food and some of it to burn for warmth. And the portion that I had remaining, I actually used it for an idol. In verse 19, no one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I burned half of it in the fire and also have baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. I fall down before a block of wood. These are harsh but true truths. And if you think about it, he's saying them, and they know this. They've seen what it has brought to their lives. Go back with me to Isaiah 59. It's from Isaiah 59, chapter 59, verse 1, is where every conversation stems from this point on, including into our text. This is the dialogue that God responds to. And this is the pinnacle of all Isaiah because it finally gets to the root problem for what we see today. Sin. It's at the core It's at the root. And I find here, I have to believe that when Judah responds to Isaiah, they actually have a genuine spirit. He's actually answering a question that we have to understand and apply. What what are they asking? He's giving the answer. Look in chapter 59, verse 1. He says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. They're asking the question, Isaiah, what you say is true. What we've experienced is true. What we've seen as the outcome of this shallow religion is true. Now what? What, what? We see where we are. Help us. Can, can God save? They've obviously been sitting before idols that cannot see and cannot do and, and cannot perform any salvific value. They're asking earnestly. They want to know, can your God save us? Can he remedy the situation we find ourselves in today? It's genuine. And you would think at this point, I I would love to see a word of encouragement. But for the rest of these 14 verses, Isaiah puts his thumb on the pulse of the problem of all society today. He does it in three perspectives. He's going to say, first of all, you, and he's incriminating. The second thing, he's going to put to they, those that say they love God and do not. And finally, he's going to be the incorporated we. He says, but we. Look at, look at verses 2 and 3. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Remember that. Your iniquities have made this separation. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Why can't he hear you? It's your iniquity. You ask where God's hand is? Look at verse 3. You're asking where God's hand of salvation is? Look where your hands of salvation, or look where your hands are. Verse 3, for your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. The idea is you're dipping your hands into something and taking part of it. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Why can't God hear you? You're muttering. You're muttering wickedness. 
No one sues righteously, verse 4. No one pleads honestly. They trust in confusion and speak lies. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. And then he goes, verses 5, all the way down to verse 8. And he says, this is what they're doing. Don't you see what they're doing? Verse 8, they do not know the way of peace. There is no justice in their tracks. They've made their paths crooked. Whoever treads on them does not know. And then therefore, from this point on, Isaiah says, but I'm as guilty as you are. I'm part of the problem as well. Verse 9, therefore justice is far from us. It's time we become honest with the position we're in. It's time we become very honest with the status that we have before God. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, but behold darkness for brightness, but we walk in the gloom. We grope along the wall, like verse 10, like blind men, we're seeking, we're searching. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as if it's in the middle of the night and twilight. And among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. He's confessing. He's confessing. He's making an honest assessment of their state, of the people of Judah. And he's saying, Verse 11, we growl like bears. We moan sadly like doves. We're getting down to the bottom. We're almost there. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. Do you want the definition of hopelessness? Do you want to mark that in your Bible, where hopelessness is? It's right there in verse 11. That's the cry of a whole people, a whole nation. Verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us for our transgressions are with us. And here it is in verse 12, confession, true confession. This must come before God works. And we know our iniquities. He lists them, transgressing and denying the Lord, turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and utterance and uttering from the heart lying words. The root cause in the decay of society is not a president. It's not a party. It's not the wealthy of us. It's not the poor of us. It's not the youth. It's not the old. It's not our race. It's not our ethnicity. It's not a foreign enemy. It's not a domestic terrorist. The root cause is our sin. Our sin. He goes right after them all the way through here. And when we see this breakdown of individual morality, the results in the breakdown are on our streets, in our towns, our cities, and our nation. What's interesting in verse 14, I read one, one commentator said this, from this text in verse 14, you can find and locate four elements needed for a peaceful and a just society. And what's amazing is Isaiah personifies them to give you an image of a society with these four elements being people. Verse 15, Verse 14, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. There's the second one. Truth is stumbling in the streets, and uprightness cannot enter. Those are the four things you need for a society. Justice, righteousness, truth, and a moral people to keep them. Well, let's stop right here. Wow, this is, a, this is an honest assessment for a Christmas, prior Christmas service, is it not? Before you can see the glory of what's going to happen in a few days when you worship the birth of our Messiah, you have to understand what the people of that time were looking for. 
They were looking for hope. Where do we look for comfort concerning the future? Where do we turn when fear creeps in? Most importantly, where do we go when we need heart change? And Isaiah responds, and what does he do? He has to separate the incomparable God from an idol, and he has to introduce them to their God. And he does in three ways, three axiomatic truths in our text that we had. He shows them first, your God sees in verse 59, or chapter 59, verses 15 through 16. Secondly, he says, your God acts, acts, verse 17 through 20. And finally, your God speaks, verses 59, or chapter 59, 21 through verses, or chapter 60, verse 2, sorry. Let's look at the first one. Your God sees, your God sees, verse 15, that's where we are now. Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself pray. Now, the Lord saw. Real simple, two main verbs. Look at verse 15 and 16, and he saw, and he saw. Their question back in chapter 59, verse 1 was, can he save us? Can he even hear us? And Isaiah starts off and says, you don't know how close he is. Not only can he hear you, not only can he save you, he can see you. That's the problem. That's the problem with sin. We think no one sees, but God sees. And in verse 15, he sees all of it. We see our first point is, your God sees injustice. He sees the injustice. And in verse 15, he starts with, yes, He's affirming everything that they've just confessed in verses 14 and 13. Yes, I see what you're doing. You think you've held it from me, but I've seen it this whole time. Yes, truth is lacking or failing. He sees injustice because truth is gone. We also see that he sees that there is no justice because justice is gone. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight because there was no justice. God is not indifferent. He's not blind like these idols. No, all the way through Isaiah, you hear the same phrase to describe God, the Holy One of Israel. He's the Holy One of Israel. Holy meaning he's transcendent, but of Israel meaning he's imminent and closer than you think. God sees what is happening and rightly understands the root cause for all injustice, the total depravity of man. Sin has corrupted us to this point. And this is deeper than a national problem. Don't think this is just about a nation of Judah. We've left the idea of a national problem. Now God is zeroing in on a spiritual problem, a sin problem. What else does God see? Look at verse 16. And he saw. God sees your need. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. God sees your need for intercession. It's interesting, there was no man, it means humanity, it's a covering term. There was no one on this earth today that can intercede for you. What does that mean? The idea of intercession is a military term, it's defense. It would be like, here's a person, they're going to be attacked, and someone comes in and and sets up a blocking line or some type of barrier and, and stands in front of the gap and stops something from happening. He saw that there was no man. Humanity can't do it. And he was astonished that there was no one comprehensive, nothing, no one can intercede. Anyone? Anybody? 
The idea that God was astonished took me probably two hours just to sit and try to think through that. How is God astonished at that? Doesn't he know? What does this mean? Well, it means when you look through that, it means he was appalled, amazed, shuddered, driven to astonishment. And one gentleman wrote this. He said, he's just constantly surprised of how gross sin is. It's repulsive. It's revolting. It doesn't mean he doesn't know that it's there. It's just his demeanor and stance toward it is of disgust and distance. That's why we understand they're separated from him. But then, but then something happens. The valley of sin, the valley of confession, and the valley of turning everything over to God finds its first step up. Then, His own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. Your God sees your need for intercession, but he sees your need for salvation. It's his own arm. It's a singular solution. No one else, we already said nobody, but we're saying it's his arm. And all through Scripture, his arm is powerful and mighty to save. Look at Psalm 98.1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. Back in Isaiah 52.10, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Isaiah 63.5, I looked and there was no one to help. I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. God must do this. His own arm brought salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Could anyone else's righteousness work? They couldn't even find it in the street. They couldn't even locate it. It was his righteousness that brought salvation. No no one, not even ourselves can save us. No idol, no material thing, no man, only God. Why? Because his divine character causes him to act. It causes him to act. And that brings us to our second point in verses 17, 18, and 19. Your God acts. Isaiah must tell them, you're sitting there in Babylon and don't be afraid. Have hope because at this very time, your God is decisively acting on your behalf. In the first image we see, we see that God acts in preparation, verse 17. And it's this idea of, an, of, an, of a man or a warrior preparing for battle. Verse 17 Look at, the, look at the verbs here. Verse 17, he put on, and then later on, he put on, and then you see he wrapped himself. He's getting prepared. The first thing we see is armor. Your God acts in preparation, and he's putting on his armor. He put on the righteousness like a breastplate. What does that look like? We get that when we read of uh, David and Goliath, when it speaks of David, or it's speaks of Goliath putting his armor on. In 1 Samuel 17, 5, it said, this is of Goliath, he had a bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor, same word there, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. The first thing he's doing is he's putting on armor and getting dressed for battle. The second thing, and these are all character traits of God, righteousness, he put on righteousness-like armor and a helmet of what? Character, salvation. He is a God that saves on his head. The second thing we see is his garment, the middle of verse 17. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. Garments of vengeance for clothing. He is a 
God that acts in vengeance. Deuteronomy 32.5, remember when God speaks to the people of Israel? Vengeance is mine. In retribution, due time, their foot will slip. The day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. So he's put his armor on, and now he puts the garment of vengeance over top of his armor. And finally, you see in the end of verse 17, he wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. It's the outer cloth. It, the idea, if you look at the history of that, it's a sleeveless outer garment. It's a, it's a, a tunic. But what's amazing is he wrapped himself in zeal, in passion, desire, strong desire. God is acting in preparation to do something. And it will be his desire. It's his intent. It's his pure, just, and right motive. God is always acting, even though the people of Judah at that time cannot see, even though the people of this time say, where is your God? Mark it. God is acting in preparation and all these words, they're in the perfect tense. It's, he's essentially, he's doing this right now. He was doing it then, he's doing it now. For what? For what? The first thing is, verse 18, God will act in judgment. And what's interesting is it's not the idea of like a, a physical judgment, like a, like a sword or a disciplinarian type thing. It's a transactory judgment. Because right at verse 18, look at the start. According to their deeds, he will repay. He's like an accountant. He has a, a chart, a list. He has a, a breakdown of what has been accrued against you. And he goes through it and he's saying, I will repay. According to their deeds, so, verse 18, he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries and recompense to his enemies. To their deeds, we understand one of, the, one of the truths that I learned that I remember just shook me to the core is I was saved by grace, but I will be judged by my deeds. That's, that's thought-provoking. That's humbling. That's not new to Scripture. First Peter 1.17, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. All the way back in Revelation 20, 12, I saw the dead, the great, and the small standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in their books according to their deeds. God will act in righteous judgment, and he will pay what is due. And when it talks about here, from the coastlines, he will make recompense. He's essentially saying from coast to coast, everyone gets their due. Coast to coast judgment, total and exact. Well, when will this happen? That's their, that's their plea. When will this happen? And finally, excuse me, you will see that God acts determinately, determinately in verses 19 and 20. The first thing is, he is determined to come. In verse 19, he will come and he will come quickly. So, they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun to the east and he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. He's coming quickly. The imagery is of a stream that's being condensed down and down and down and down until that, that stream now has picked up velocity, intensity. It squeezes it down until that water is literally a jet. He will come like that, like a rushing stream. We see this also in Isaiah 30, 28. 
and it gives the perfect imagery. His breath is like an overflowing torrent which reaches to the neck. It was not long ago, I went down to San Diego and I got trapped in a, um, one of those uh, riptides for the first time in my life. That was scary. I'm not from California originally, that was new. And I'll never forget, I was out on the board and I slid off and I thought, I think I can touch here. And as I strained my foot down, I sunk down through the water and when the water got about to my neck, I said, I, I don't think I can touch here. And under I went. That's the imagery. He comes in judgment like the water is up to the top of your neck and it is driving. Judgment will be upon us is what Isaiah is saying. It will be quick and it's being driven along by the Lord. God, God will correct God will fix, God will, will fix it quickly, and he will do this determinately. But his purpose only isn't judgment. Look at verse 20. He is coming to save. A redeemer will come. The summation of everything just expressed in verses 15 to here finds its resolute in one simple phrase. A redeemer will come. There's no logical next step. He, he takes everything that was in verses 15 through 19 and he drives it to this point. This is the summation of all that is above. A redeemer will come to Zion. This is his purpose. This is not a national savior. God was always looking for an inside-out love for him, even from the people of Judah. This is not a national savior, but this is a personal savior. This is the Messiah. It's interesting. We see a redeemer come is actually, it's an active participle. It's essentially saying the one who is redeeming. It's interesting also that he uses this, and we see this all the way back in Ruth, about the kindred redeemer. This is someone that can't pay. So we're talking about all this judgment and this financial essentially accounting that we can't pay for. And he uses the term redeemer to describe the Messiah in a way that he makes payment for us. A redeemer will come to Zion. He's coming and he's coming for who? Those who turn from transgression. Specifically in the context here, it's transgression in Jacob declares the Lord what kind of redeemer is he? This has been the nature of God this whole time. In Psalm 78, 35, they remembered their God was their rock and the most high God their redeemer. When Isaiah is introducing them back to their God, he's taking them not to somewhere new, but what they've been told, what they know. Psalm 111, 9, he has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Isaiah 63, 16, for you are, this is them speaking back to God, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us, he's long gone, and Israel doesn't recognize us, he's gone, but it's you and you alone. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from old is your name. That's his name. A Messiah. We sang that song, uh, O come, O come, Emmanuel, it's one of my most favorite songs. It's a song that's very soulful. It's very deep. I always find myself, when I listen to Christmas music, it's always good, but when that song, when that song comes on, I stop. 
That song captures these people and their desire. That song captures our desire. O come, O come, Emmanuel. We're looking for that. And here, in just one verse, he makes the simple statement, a Redeemer will come. If you had a question, if Judah had a question at this point, they might ask, are you sure? Can, can we trust that? Now we see your God speaks. Your God speaks. Verse 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. I have promised you from ages past to send the Messiah. The personhood and the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf for that sin root problem. And he will come. Can we trust that? Yes, says the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant. I have made this covenant based on my character, based on the fact that you have no righteousness and I will give that to you. We see that God speaks very charitably. Look at all this. As for my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you, my words which I have put in your mouth. God is charitable. My daughter just asked me this morning, why is it that we do give presents? Why is it that we do gift giving? It's because we, we rest on the unchangeable character of God and he has given the greatest gift, the Lord Jesus Christ. Make sure you tell your children why we give them gifts. It's not because Best Buy had a good deal. It's because God gave us gifts. Wonderful, wonderful gifts. And we, we give gifts. And, and God is here in verse 21. He's charitable. He says, as for this, my, this is my covenant. We know that the, he's talking about Judah. But then he, he turns and he says, now he turns, he says, my spirit is, which is upon you. Who's he talking to here? God's talking to the Redeemer. He says, my spirit, which is upon you. Where do we get that idea? Well, Luke chapter 1, verse 35, remember? When the angel comes and visits Mary, he says, my spirit will be upon you. God is saying, my spirit which is upon you, and what else? My words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart. The Messiah has been given a message, and this message will never depart from his mouth. And then it tells us about his offspring. Who are his offspring? We are. And the message is the gospel. The message is the gospel. I have put words in your mouth of the truth of who you are and you will put them to your offspring and to your offspring's offspring and to your offspring's offspring and the family will grow and build off these simple words of truth that there is a righteous and a holy God who owns everything, the world and all that contains in it. He owns it all and man has fallen as we've seen right here in verse 16 to a point there is no hope. But Christ, the one you will celebrate the birth of here in a few days, has come to bridge that gap. To die, to, to be born, to live and to die a righteous life and death. To die for your sins and my sins on our behalf. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. My words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord. He is so charitable that he gives gifts of eternal value, says the Lord from now and forever. 
There's a little bit more to the gospel. A response. How do we respond to such good news? How do we respond to the news that a Redeemer has come? A Redeemer is coming. That's what's, that's what's most amazing about these prophets. They, they project in two levels. It's the near perfect and it's the far. It's the near right now, what we're lo- looking for locally, but it's also what's coming later on. I find this the most important, the most neat thing. When your God speaks, he speaks authoritatively. Chapter 60, verse 1. What you have to understand now is Isaiah stops talking to the people of Judah. And he turns and he looks at Zion, the city of Jerusalem that has been ransacked, razed, and destroyed. And he points at it, and the word of the Lord goes out and he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Why would he say that? Well, look back in Isaiah 29.4. I have it here. You don't have to look back, but Isaiah 29.4. This is the judgment against Jerusalem, the city of Zion. He's, he's, God is talking to Zion at that time. Then you will be brought low, and from the earth you will speak, and from the dust where you are prostrate, your words will come. Your voice will also be like that of the spirit from the ground, and your speech will whisper from the dust. He took Zion down, put it into the dirt. And so when he speaks authoritatively, he uses the same words in which he created the world and the same words which he changes the heart. And he tells a city, a figurative city, he gives it personhood and he says, arise and shine. Why? Because your light is here and your glory is here. Notice this, past tense. This is what makes this so amazing. He's giving them words of life now. We can understand this, that this is, even though it's figurative for that nation, he's calling on that nation, to assume, that, that city to assume what it's going to receive, and that is a rebuilding, a restructuring, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in it. You can make that jump to us as people. When God says, this is the gospel that will go all the way through, and this is the Messiah that I will send, What you have is the words of truth in life where you are called to arise and shine and reflect the glorious grace of God. Look at verse 2. It was perfect, but God also speaks with a promise. He speaks with a promise despite the darkness. As we see here, for behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. What do we do? do? How do we handle this? He says, well, confess your sin, live rightly, look to the Messiah, turn from your ways, and even though you see darkness, and even though you feel powerless, never be afraid, never be fearful that the greatest tool you have to affect everyone around you is the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because behold, the darkness will cover the earth and the deep darkness of the peoples, but the Lord, now we see it in the future, will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Their heart waits for this. Our heart waits for this. And this is where you have to have your eschatology in line. You do need to study what's happening because right here is one of the greatest promises we can ever have. The king is coming. 
The Messiah has come, but he is coming back again. I, I mentioned that song. That song has such an expectancy, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and I found that there was a man that had broke down and he had went through and essentially found that that, that song had all the names of the Messiah in it from Isaiah, including Emmanuel or Adonai, Branch of Jesse, Orions or the Morning Star, and then the Key of David. The Key of David is the idea that when Christ returns, he sets his foot down on the Mount of Olives and he walks down and he unlocks the new risen Zion. He unlocks it so that the people of God have somewhere to go that they can return. What, a, what an amazing hope. Our, our response should be this, that just like those people in the Babylonian captivity, our full hope and our full desire is for the coming of the Messiah. I could finish on that song of the 8th century. It is a beautiful song, but turn with me, everybody, please. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 26, verse 9. And I'll finish with a song in Isaiah. This is a song of trust. Regardless of what you see outside these doors when you leave today, you have the greatest message of hope ever given. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we handle that? Well, we can sing a song, and you'll sing many songs, but highlight this one in your Bible and keep it. Isaiah 26, 9. At night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgment, which is at his return, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness.